driven or drawn? The answer to that question makes all the difference, driven or drawn. In our lives, there are, there are definitions that, and, and there are lies that are put upon us that we are only as good as what we can do, what we can accomplish. And when we are used up, this world throws us away as a piece of refuse. All our lives, we can be faced with this struggle of being driven instead of drawn. When Cheryl and I moved to St. Louis, Missouri, we moved away from our family in Buffalo, New York, and we were having, we were having a renaissance in our relationship with God. Don't get me wrong, we had, we had a church life in Buffalo. Um, I met Cheryl when I was in high school. I was a senior, she was a junior, and um, very quickly I began to call her the girl of miracles because she and her family were a refuge for me. And I had had, I had, had a lot of brokenness in my, in my growing up years. And as we were having this renaissance, um, we had, we had um, a children's choir in Buffalo and the half notes and the whole notes and a youth group, and I was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. When we moved to St. Louis, we had this whole brokenness with who is God in our lives. Because we were removed from all of our friends, all of our family, we were alone. Cheryl even tells the story about looking back down into the backyard where it was forested and saying in a moment of despair, God, did you move here with us? We were struggling. But out of that struggle, we began to have this wonderful renaissance. And, and out of Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing, and this is called the Joy Letter, because um, uh, it's one of, the, one of the memorable verses is, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I tell you, rejoice. And that's in, the, it's in, the, in a command. He's telling us to rejoice. But in chapter 3, as Paul is writing from prison, there were two things that really struck me in this chapter. First, what is more, I consider everything a loss, I consider them garbage. And I, looking back at, at my growing up years, that really resonated with me. To, to, to just consider it garbage. It's in the past. It's gone. I'm, I'm a new person now, including my last name. And, and then later on in, in uh, verse 13, forgetting what is behind. Yeah, forgetting what is behind. And that just really spoke to me. And as we were beginning to grow, we were in a covenant group together with, uh, with three other couples, and we were in Stephen ministry um, in a lay um, uh, helping relationship for, with the pastors. God was just bringing things. And then one day, I started getting this sense, Rick, you need to go back to Buffalo. You know, need to go back to your hometown. It, it, it was an unmistakable sense, that a longing that God had put in my heart to go back. And I, and I had this sense of that there was something I needed to experience. And so I told Cheryl, and we made our plans. 
and we, we drove, and the, the way we drove in those days is um, uh, we, we drove all night long because the kids would be quiet in the back seat. It was wonderful. Then they got old enough and they stayed awake all night, and it, yeah, we started driving in the daytime. So went back to Buffalo. And, and what had happened in my, in my growing up years is that my dad was my hero. He was the one who affirmed me. He was the one who, who called me Mr. Fix-It because I, I just had a sense of mechanical things and could, could put them back together. He gave me so much of my identity. I remember one day sitting, uh, sitting with him at the table and he told me, he said, I want to tell you about such and such a person um, when electricity started being put into homes so that you could have electric lights, there were fires in the houses because the circuits were overloaded. And this man invented a fuse. And he put it, he, he, it when instead of a fire starting, the fuse would blow. Nowadays, it's circuit breakers. And, and so I went and I told my first grade teacher this story. And she says, oh, oh, let me call the principal. And the principal came up and I told the story about the, about the man who invented the fuse. And it, it, that, that was my dad, a very gentle-hearted man. But now th things were, as I got to seven years old, something, something happened that radically changed my life. I remember... Hearing a fight, I woke up to it in the, in the night, hearing a, a, just a, a desperate struggle between my mother and dad. And he said, let me go, and out the door he went. And I heard the car pull rapidly out of the driveway. And I was just deeply troubled. And the next morning, when I got up, my mom walked down the hallway and said, Mom, where's dad? She had this worried look in her face, and she said, I don't know. All day long at school, all I wanted was my dad, to see him again. And when I came home, I came down through, through the uh, backyard, and there was my dad's car. And my heart leapt within me, and I ran into the house, and I saw my aunts and uncles sitting around the kitchen table. My mother was nowhere in sight. My dad was nowhere in sight. And I said, where's my dad? He said, he's not here. Where's mom? She's upstairs sleeping. And my, my uncle put the three boys, my two brothers and myself, and I was the oldest, in his car, took us to his, took his, to us, to his house, and we were sitting in the driveway. And that's when I heard the news. Your dad is dead. He died from a brain tumor or a clot in his brain. He said, you'll have to be the man of the family now. It's the oldest. And at seven years old, I guess I was wired that way anyway, but family dynamic radically changed from that point. When I found out how my dad really died, it was two years later, sitting on a bar stool with another uncle. And he, in kind of an inebriated state, crying, told me that my dad had taken his life. And it deeply affected me because in later years I finally realized that what had happened to me in that news was that I realized in my little kid self that I wasn't good enough to make my dad want to stay. 
That is the kind of thing that many of us go through being driven in life. You see, when, when the forces of the world and, and your whole world turns upside down and, and suddenly your friends don't play with you anymore because of the stigma attached to what happened in your family and, and adult friends are no longer adult friends with your, with your family and, and things change like that, the, the message of not being good enough is very prevalent. Uh, it's, it's a reaction that, that Satan is very happy to fan those flames. And <clears throat> basically, you can have two reactions when you're driven. You can drop out, you can drug out, or you can work harder, try and be that person, do the right things, learn the right things, be in the right places, do, the, do whatever is necessary for the world to tell you you're worth something, to be driven. But it's a dead end. It is a dead end that ultimately leaves you on a trash heap because as soon as you're used up and there's nothing more to give, the world just throws you away. Driven or drawn? So I was drawn back home to Buffalo where the greatest disaster of my life had happened. God was about to do the greatest miracle of transformation. You see, when a mind gets changed, and this is a battlefield up here, what happens between these ears is where everything happens. This is a battlefield between good and evil. And God drew me back home because he had amazing, amazing lessons to teach me. And so we, we went back to uh, Buffalo and, and we had the intention of going to all of my childhood spots. 175 Lisbon Avenue was the house that I grew up in. It's the house where my dad ended his life. Down the street was public school 63. I remember all the teachers' names that I had in that public school. It was on the same block with my house. I could walk to school in the morning and walk home in the afternoon. Across from uh, school 63 was, was um, the delicatessen where you could buy a pretzel for a penny. <laughs> O'Brien's Delicatessen. And down the street a little bit further was Schober's gas station that had been turned into a used car lot. But Schober's gas station was where everybody in the neighborhood bought their gas and got their cars fixed. And there was the mailbox that my, that my dad showed me how to mail a letter that I could take the bills and take them down and put them in the mailbox and check it twice to make sure the letters went down the chute. And then we, uh, then we went to, uh, down into the southern tier of New York State to Nellie and Charlie's farm. They were long past, since passed, but they had this little dairy farm. And we walked up, met the, met the uh, uh, son and daughter-in-law of Nellie and Charlie, Rodney, and um, uh, I think just, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we went up into the barn and we smelled the leather harnesses that were there. We smelled, because it used to be a horse-drawn uh, plow system, and it was a little dairy farm, and you could smell the, resi the resident uh, straw 
And then we went to Lake Demon, which is actually, uh, if you pronounced it properly, it would be Lake Demon, but for obvious reasons, they've just pronounced it Lake Demon. And there was a pavilion there, and we could smell the smells. And we met people along the way that had been a part of, uh, of my youth. And then we went out to uh, East Aurora, and I visited Charlie Johnson and Doris Johnson, his wife. Charlie Johnson, a hero in my life. A man who made all the difference for me. And as I, as I got back home, we drove back the family uh, to St. Louis Valley Park. I was sitting there and suddenly I realized the message that God had for me. And that was I could no sooner I could no sooner forget and put away all of my youth and all of my experiences than to deny who I was. Because I was a product of the struggles and the good things. That, that as God had, had brought me back to the different people that he had interspersed in my life at strategic times in my life, I realized... That, that God's hand was moving even in the midst of all of the most difficult tragedies and, and losses. God was there. That, that the Lord was there with me. And, and I was so blessed to just look at that and realize, well, I want to I get deeper into this passage. Now, Paul's writing from prison. And, and it's toward the end of his life, and he is sharing the deepest discoveries that he's had. Because you have to understand that he was, he was super religious as he was growing up. He was, he was raised under a teacher, the, one of the most preeminent teachers of that time, Gamaliel. He, he probably, coming from Damascus as a Hellenized Jew, wasn't really purebred in, its, in the sense of being born in Jerusalem or, the, or Judah. And I think he was a little bit of an outsider, but boy, was he an overachiever. And he's being criticized, and he's writing in response to this. And he says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, just according to Jewish law. He did it. I mean, his parents did it. He, he was it. He says, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, his lineage was, was impeccable. He was one of the honor tribes. His, he descended from, oh, as a matter of fact, he was even named Saul because of King Saul was a Benjamite. An honor tribe of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I was it. I mean, I was it. I had the pedigree. And then he continues, in regard to the law of Pharisee. <laughs> That's the upper crust. Those are the ones who do it all right. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Persecuting the church. Persecuting the church. <laughs> and I can see Paul just pausing there because he dictated all this, right? Persecuting the church. I have a, 
pastor friend, Clarence Schild, who says, we are never more likely to sin than when we know we're right. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But Paul pivots very quickly. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. It all changed for him. He thought he had it all figured out. He, he, he was doing all the stuff that his culture demanded of him. He was driven, driven to achieve, to be better, to be more. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he became blind so that he could see. He met Jesus and his whole life changed. In an instant, Paul went from being driven to being drawn by the love of Jesus. And it made all the difference for him. But was it whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's amazing when our values change, what happens. When our motivations change, how it changes us. Paul didn't become some lazy slacker when he met Jesus. He just changed bosses. I mentioned Charlie Johnson to you. He was a hero for me. Before Charlie Johnson, I was working for a siding contractor. I wasn't quick enough. I wasn't accurate enough. He, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I worked so hard for him trying to do the right thing, get, get those panels up as quick as possible, get them in the right place, get them nailed up, trying to do everything to please this guy. I could never please him. And every morning they had breakfast together, and I would be just the odd one out because I wasn't good enough. Then I got a summer job at Buffalo Weaving and Belting Corporation. Charlie Johnson was the president. Now he hired me to do labor while I was going to college. And the only reason he hired me was, he says, you're no, you're no, well, he was a Navy commander. He, he would use some expletives a little bit. But he was, he was Cheryl's Sunday school teacher. And he says, I'll hire you because I like Cheryl. Well, I worked hard, and then um, when, I, when I was ready to graduate from college, Cheryl and I were ready to get married. I met her as a senior, as I told you. I was done with college, and I went and met, met with her dad. And <laughs> I thought things went great. I came home, the next morning I called Cheryl. He said yes, and she said, what? He said, no. He said, you need a job first. Well, I didn't think that was going to be any problem. I talked to Charlie Johnson. He hired me on in the fabricating department at Buffalo Weaving and Belting, and I had 24 women working for me. Oh, my. They were all older than me. They were all like my mother. And when they got in a fight with each other, I learned very quickly, you do not interject yourself into a fight between women. 
big life lesson there. So it was about six months, and he said to me, Rick, I would like you to work in the research and the development department to create new products. And I say, I don't know any of that. You know, the Mr. Fix-It thing? He says, that's right, you don't know anything so that you don't know it won't work. And so um, he kind of created this department around me. He sent me to school to learn about rubber technology and chemistry and, and how, how, how all this stuff works. And, um, and we ended up, um, one particular product that we met made was a Kevlar belt that replaced asbestos in the glass industry and it got a patent. And it was, you know, Charlie Johnson was that guy. And, you know, if you try doing new things, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, like a church, you know, you try new things, there are mistakes made, and, and there are costs. But you, like um, that old bumper sticker when we were a kid, behold, the turtle never makes progress unless he sticks his neck out. Well, so anyway, I had made a costly mistake. And um, the long knives were out all of the different managers, and uh, it had cost the company some money, and we were sitting at a conference room table. And, and they started doing this thing, and I'm feeling like the main course. And Charlie Johnson, all six foot four of them, stood up at that table, conference room table, put his fists on the table, and he says, don't give me that, boop, he spoke Navy. And he said, all right, let's look at the situation. How are we going to fix this? He put himself on the line for me. He spent his capital protecting me. You know, I can't remember that guy. I don't remember his name. I don't remember hardly, hardly what he looked like that hired me to do siding. But boy, do I remember Charlie Johnson. I think that that's... That's where I learned the most about who God was. God isn't, God isn't this exacting tyrant who is setting up obstacles so that only the best, the strongest, the fastest, the, the, the most complete make it through. God is a God who is removing barriers and opening up ways for us to experience life here and to be prepared for life in eternity. That's the God that I serve. That's what I learned. And so God had put these different people in my life at different times to, to make the difference so that I was ready in the moment that he called me to hear that message. I met Jesus. And I went from being driven to achieve and prove I was worth something to knowing that I was precious in his eyes. He continues on, what more? I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And there's a principle here. Someone once told me you can't fill a full glass. <laughs> Paul learned that he had to be emptied in order to be filled. He had to lose those things that he once thought were important and keep the things that were good, but lose those, those things that motivated him to be driven 
and to be empty to receive what Christ had for him. The beautiful message of the gospel. He, he, he completely changed in his understanding of what truly was important. And when we see things in a new way, we respond in a new way. When we are driven, we are unhealthy, we are dangerous. But when we are drawn by the love of Jesus, we become safer and safer people to be around. We have more and more to celebrate in our lives because that's what Jesus is all about. In comparison, it was garbage. And in the, new, in the uh, King James Version, it actually says dung in place of garbage. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Praise God! I tried making a righteousness of my own. It doesn't work. It dries us up. And you know, one of the mechanisms that takes place when we're trying to make ourselves righteous is we begin to get a score sheet. Well, I'm not as good as they are, but I'm better than they are. Because we get so discouraged with our own lack of conformity and our lack of performance that we start comparing ourselves to others. Boy, what a dead end that is. And by found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's something that's given to us. It is something that we cannot earn. Amen. It is a gift that God gives us. You, you know, you talk, about, you talk about freedom. When we are driven, we are slaves to try to make ourselves good enough. And we are never good enough in the eyes of the world. But we are precious in the eyes of Jesus. Amen. Our value comes from just being his. He says, now this is, this is heavy stuff. This is like so far over me. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in, in suffering. Wait a minute. In his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Suffering. But you know, truthfully, those of us with extra decades on our life recognize that it was in those toughest times that God came alongside us and suffered with us and brought us through those things. And some of our greatest life lessons come through times of loss and struggle. And maybe, maybe there are some of us who are dealing with extreme losses right now and you can't see through that. But the beauty of it is, is that one day we will understand. I only know that when I look back at my life now, my life is a miracle. When I see who God has made me, I look back and I see where I was and who I am today. It gives me great hope for the future. So Paul gives this ideal that is, I mean, it's, it, it's a challenge. It's, it's way above me. But listen, he pivots again. And th this is what he gives us now. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. I love that. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Amen. I love that. Because there is this tension in the Christian life of the reality of where we are, I'm not there yet, 
and the, and the, and the hope of where he is going to bring us. It's like the, the closest thing I can associate it with is that when I was looking forward to learning how to ride a bicycle, you know, I had my tricycle, but one day I'm going to get those training wheels off on a two-wheeler and I'm going to be able to ride my bicycle. Or looking forward to the day when I get my driver's license. I think this Christian journey is one where we have a yearning for something more than where we are and we have, we're, we're going someplace, that God has us going someplace. That even in our sufferings, it has a purpose, that God is taking us through this. I mean, the reality is people have choices. And sometimes people make choices that inflict upon us deep pain and losses. And God forbid, you know, we make our own choices, don't we? We do. But Paul gives this tension of where I long to be after he gives all these ideals about Jesus and the reality of where I am with lots of hope that I'm going someplace. And then, then he says, after he says, not that I've attained all this or already been made complete or perfect or, or mature, there are different translations. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and looking toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of the prize for which Christ Jesus, which God in Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Drawn. Driven or drawn? It is the question of the hour. Are you driven or are you drawn? I, I think... Sometimes we can fall back into old habits. Maybe some have at one time been drawn by the love of Jesus, but that love has grown cold. But the good news is, is that Jesus is always there with his arms out for us. Maybe some here have never known this Jesus. Maybe you, you thought you knew God. And, and you have a hunger to know Jesus in that fuller sense of who God is for you. Driven or drawn? It is a great question. It is something that we struggle with in our lives. Driven or drawn? The love of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, Verse 16, Paul states this in a different way. He says, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, understand that Paul is writing from his personal experience. Oftentimes we think of these Bible writers as just being these, these you know, higher, higher than we could ever imagine. But these are people like us who have experienced, have, have experienced God and, and they've gone through struggles. And Paul here is relating something that is absolutely earth-shattering in his life. He says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, one of the things that's amazing about this is that this is in the passive voice that, that in that verb, is 
if we turn to the Lord, that's something we're doing. So we're walking away from God. We turn to the Lord. Another word for that is repent. And in the, in the uh, Hebrew, it would be return. We turn to the Lord. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's something that's done for us. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, am I back? There we go. Sort of. Okay. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the, Lord, now, the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we, we turn, the veil is taken away, and the Spirit of the Lord gives us freedom. Because Paul is talking about a Christian principle. He's talking about a biblical principle that it's an inside-out thing. When we are driven, we are trying to drive it from the outside in. But God does it from the inside out. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory from glory unto glory. There is a transformation that takes place in us. And I love what this is. You know, when Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made complete, the same thing is here. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and we reflect his glory from glory unto glory. It's a progression as we look to Jesus. It's, it's, it's there in, in the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, you bear much fruit. Spending time with Jesus, praying together, worshiping together, sharing together, applying what we've learned together. I love, one of the things I love about this congregation is you are very outreach focused. You are relevant in your community. That is where the gospel is solidified in us. That is where we are fine-tuned because God is very much into on-the-job training. He is. So, driven or drawn by the love of Jesus. That is the question that we all face. Somewhere along the line in my life, Jesus came to my heart and he awakened in me a whole new understanding. And where I am today is not where I was before. And where I am today is not where I will be tomorrow because I am a work in progress, as are you. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. I celebrate a God who is patient with us when we're driven and, and very, very lavishing of love on us as we come to the place where we meet Jesus and we become drawn by his love. May it be so for us on this day, whether you are new in the faith or long in the faith, May you know a great blessing 
as you are drawn by the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who are we that you are mindful of us? And yet, you came in the midst of a sin-polluted world to be among us, to love us, to heal us, to embrace us. You are the Father of compassion who comforts us in all our troubles so that we, in turn, can comfort one another. You are the eternal, powerful God who is able to call a whole creation into being and personal enough to do an act of recreation in us. Lord, draw us ever closer until we see you face to face and you welcome us into eternity and you say, good and well done, good and faithful servant. Come inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you.